0: These are the daily lectionary comments for July the 18th. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 21, and Galatians chapter 6. We're going to finish up the book of Galatians today. 1 Samuel 1, beginning at verse 21. I want to make uh, some general comments here uh, regarding this text. First off, uh, we have uh, Hannah's Prayer. Now, when you read Hannah's prayer, this is a beautiful prayer uh, that Hannah uh, offered when God, of course, gave to her uh, and answered her prayer and gave to her a son. Hannah's prayer is obviously sort of the template that Mary had in her mind when she uh, composed the words of her famous song, what we call the Magnificat. The Magnificat still being sung in churches regularly uh, to this day. But the basic theme of both Hannah's song and the Magnificat, I, I guess if you, you'd have to say first an exaltation of God, but then also the way that God reverses what normal expectations would be in society. He, he casts the mighty down from the thrones and he raises up the humble. <coughs> he Feeds the hungry, he sends the uh the rich uh away without anything. Um he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So this is the basic idea, <coughs> the basic theme of both Hannah's song and the Magnificat. I'll just point that out. Secondly, <coughs> Samuel is given over to the tabernacle as a very small child, just, just barely weaned. <coughs> so what does this mean? Uh, this doesn't mean that he actually lived in the tabernacle itself, but he would have been he would have lived and been raised by the various priestly families <coughs> that would have lived there in Shiloh. So some priests would have been there more or less permanently. For example, Eli and his sons, unfortunately, <coughs> and then other priests would have sort of rotated in and out according to a uh, schedule because you didn't need as many priests actually serving at the tabernacle at any given time as there were uh, uh, descendants of Aaron in the land. But Samuel then would have been raised among the families of the priests from this very, very early age. Uh, and so uh, it, 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 the text presents Samuel as a very innocent and holy child from the very beginning. He's a child wearing an ephod that is to say, a a, um, a garment that's worn over the breast that indicates that you are in service to the Lord at the tabernacle. So it's presenting him in a very different light than how it presents everything else that is going on there in that tab- in that uh, tabernacle. Eli and his sons, particularly the sons, are just shown to be disgraceful, and um, so and Samuel is the antithesis of that. Now, I wanted to say a comment about Shiloh. Uh, (coughs) When the Israelites were in the wilderness, the tabernacle would always dwell in their midst, but they would move around. So the tabernacle would be moving around. When they went into the promised land, the tabernacle uh, found a resting place. (coughs) And early in the conquest, the tabernacle settled in a place called Shiloh, which was uh, in, in Ephraim. And uh, north of Bethel. And and so it's a little town. And that's where uh, the tabernacle was set up. It sort of came to permanent rest. And people would go there uh, annually in order to offer their sacrifices. And um, now Shiloh, why I'm mentioning this is because later on, the prophets would use Shiloh as a byword in preaching to the people uh, at the time of of the exile, and so Micah and Jeremiah both, for example, in warning the people not to be overly confident in their tem- in the temple and in Jerusalem and in God's great love for the temple and Jerusalem, and both of these prophets would point to the ruins at Shiloh. Shiloh. Uh, came under attack by the Philistines, and the tabernacle was destroyed. The ark was not destroyed, but the tabernacle was destroyed. Later, the ark was moved to Jerusalem, and of course, the temple was built in Jerusalem. The ark was put in the temple, but Shiloh, as the earlier place where God had designated where people could come to offer their sacrifices, that place lay in ruins, and Micah and Jeremiah both directed the people uh, to consider the ruins at Shiloh, and not to doubt for a second, that God can and that God will do that to Jerusalem also and to the temple here in Jerusalem if you do not repent. So, Shiloh is just something to keep in the back of your head as a name and as where the tabernacle went and and spent most of its time before, uh, uh, before the temple was built in the time of Solomon. Now, we'll have more to say about Eli's worthless sons, but it's enough to say here... That, um, you know, they, they, the whole point or, or the, the general sort of condemnation of these people is, uh, you know, they, they profaned uh, the holy things of God. They treated the offerings as though they belonged to them. They threatened people. They slept with women in and around the, the uh, tabernacle. And Eli... Uh, is shown to be a very weak man who let this happen, who knew it was happening and let it happen. We'll have more to say about that uh, tomorrow. Well, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul is just kind of wrapping things up. And so we're going to kind of wrap things up also. Um, this, this chapter doesn't have a very strong theme of its own, but it, it it's on a couple of important things. First, I just want to point out in verse 2 and in verse 5, Paul well, seems to be saying two things that are almost the opposite. In verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens, and in verse 5, he says, each one is going to have to bear his own load. Now, <clears throat> that may sound like he said just said two uh, equal, you know opposite things, but actually... This is very simple to explain uh, by bearing one another's burdens, he, he simply means that we are to help and assist one another in our troubles and extricating one another out of sinful situations where it's possible and, and just essentially uh, be of help to one another. But the second one, where it says each will bear his own load, simply refers to the fact that each one of us is going to be responsible before the Lord for our own decisions and what we do. So we're we're not going to be able to piggyback on other people's uh, 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 righteousness. That's all that means. <clears throat> now, later on, uh, uh, Paul introduces the the general principle that you essentially you reap what you sow, and so he reminds these Galatians. Uh, you know if you if you sow to the flesh you're going to reap corruption and if you sow to the spirit by the spirit you'll reap eternal life so uh you know this is a very standard uh sort of understanding of of um you know you you uh, you you follow the lord and uh, and here's where that leads to life you follow your own desires you know there's a way that seems right to a man and the end of it is death now verse 11 is an odd little verse, and I thought you would find this interesting, where where Paul says, uh, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Okay, well, this gives us a little glimpse of what's going on. In other words, Paul has dictated the rest of this letter, but somebody else is writing it, because apparently Paul did not have very good penmanship. Now, it might be that he couldn't see very well, or for some other reason, but at any rate, this is sort of his signature. He writes this line uh, and and the line that he writes is see what large letters, you know, as he's writing, his, his script looks very different than all the rest, sort of like, uh, you know, as, as though it was giant letters, like a child was writing it or something like that. He's kind of laughing at himself and he's saying, see what large letters I'm writing with, but that's his signature there so that everybody can see that it is Paul himself who has dictated this letter, but the rest of it would have been written in nice script by somebody who actually is good at writing. Uh, Another, um, he sort of wraps up his whole discussion here with neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. Now, this very nicely sums up Paul's attitude toward the law of Moses. By circumcision or uncircumcision, circumcision is just a a stand in a shorthand for the law of Moses. And what he's saying is, look, it doesn't matter whether you follow the pattern of the law of Moses or you don't follow the pattern of the law of Moses. That doesn't really count for anything. The only thing that counts is the Holy Spirit working in us and making out of us a new creation. So that's what matters in the kingdom of God and in the world these other things, it's, it's not, in other words, it's not necessarily harmful that a person would want to follow the pattern of the law of Moses. It's just not helpful either. What we should be investing in is walking by the Spirit and letting the Spirit produce in us the new creation. In other words, Christ-likeness in us. And when we do that, that's what counts in this world. He's not talking about what counts for salvation. He's talking about what makes a difference and what moves the ball forward and accomplishes the thing which God is working in this world. Finally, verse 17, Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Um, This is just sort of his final way of underscoring his apostolic authority. He bears in his body many, many scars of the times that he has been beaten and the times that he has been stoned and otherwise abused because of his apostolic ministry. And he is pointing to those and and, and telling the Galatians, uh, essentially using that as additional proof that he is actually a bona fide servant of the Lord. See what I have suffered for the sake of the Lord.